So, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. That's what we'll look at. But as we're looking, whoops, bring that, bring that envelope back, sorry. <laughs> so, um, on the screen is an envelope. Some of you may be familiar with an envelope like this or something uh, close to it. This is like ones that uh, we used at the church when I was a youth and a young adult. We completed these envelopes every Sunday in Sunday school. After the Sunday school member, the person attending Sunday school, completed the envelope, it would be given to the Sunday school teacher, who in turn gave it to the Sunday school secretary. And then the secretary would record the numbers from these envelopes in a Sunday school record book. Now these records would be used to post on a board that was in the sanctuary. If you didn't go to Sunday school, you came to worship early, you might see that secretary changing the numbers on the board for that Sunday. Some of you are shaking your head. Yeah, yeah, you remember that. These records uh, also could be used for calculating a running record so you would know who would receive awards at the end of the year. And you could even earn Sunday school pens. You know, one year, two year, right? Anybody remember that? So let's take a look at the information on this envelope that we used to turn in. There's, of course, the personal information, the name, the date, class, department you were in, and the amount of your offering. Then there were boxes after you gave that. Then there were boxes that you checked for certain behaviors during the week. Sunday school attendance. I'm not sure why that was on there, because if you completed the envelope, it's sort of obvious you're there. But you still check the box. Bible brought. And today it would be a count if you brought an electronic one. Lesson studied. Now I noticed, you know, when we grew up, when I grew up in that church, we had a quarterly. And I think you still get some curriculum, right, Dave? For for the class. So uh, we had a quarterly, and it was sort of the thing that, that wasn't the resource for our study, but it guided our study. It sort of mapped it out as far as where we would be studying in the Bible. And uh, if you read that lesson, if you read that lesson for the week, you could check the box. You'd studied your lesson. And there's giving, right? Worship attendance. Was I staying for church? If not, did that mean I was skipping church? If I didn't check that box, I always felt like I was playing hooky. Why didn't I stay for church? I was there for Sunday school. 
Daily Bible reading and prayer. And this one was a tough one. Sometimes it caused an ethical dilemma for me. Because did I really want people, especially the Sunday school teacher and the secretary, to know that I had not read my Bible every day? Nor prayed? What kind of Christian would I be then? Then there were visits. How many people did I visit during the week? And then I would put however many that was. And then there were other contacts. And then you gave that number. I have to tell you, this system could easily puff me up or make me feel really guilty. Sometimes worthless or sometimes lost. Especially if I lied about that Bible reading thing. What a hypocrite. Let me ask you a question. How do you measure your commitment to Christ? Do you have a checklist? The title of the message is, What's the Score? What's your score? On that checklist, is it how regularly you read your Bible or pray? Are you stuck and can't move on because you feel like you're failing? In our passage today, we hear of those who opposed Paul and told the Philippians that they were falling short and had not done what was necessary to have a genuine relationship with God. They were failing, and they needed to correct their course in order to know God like they said they wanted to. According to these opponents of Paul, the Philippians were not meeting God's expectations. So my question this morning is, how do you know you measure up when you feel like you don't? How do you know that you're meeting God's expectations when you feel like you aren't? Let's read Philippians 3, 1 through 9. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's a safeguard, or it's, a, it's for your good. Watch out for those dogs. Those men who do evil. Those mutilators of the flesh. <clears throat> for it is we who are the circumcision... We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for such confidence, Paul says about himself. If anyone else thinks that he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, and what I do in the checklist, I have more reason. 
And he lists it. Circumcision on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, one of the strictest groups there was, as far as following the letter of the law and meeting God's expectations. As for zeal, his passion was, was great. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, keeping the standard, you may have in your version, blameless. Is that what you have? Yeah. And this one, it says faultless. That was his checklist. Anyone could have confidence, he says, I could because of those things. But whatever was to my profit, now he becomes Paul the accountant. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of who? Of whom? Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost some of those things. All of those things. I consider them what? What's your version say? What is it? Dung? Dung? Rubbish? Huh? Garbage? Get the point? That I may gain Christ. I lose that. I push that out. I take it to the dumpster. I take it, you know, for the trash truck on Wednesday. It has no place here. That I may gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of what? My own. Nothing Paul wrote in another place, right? You can't brag about your salvation. You did not earn it. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, trust. So my question was, how do you measure up when you feel like you don't? That's what the Philippians were dealing with here. With these opponents and these challengers to their commitment. So let's consider two parts to that question. First is, what makes you feel like you don't measure up? There are people who make us feel inferior. Some intentionally and some unintentionally. 
Sometimes people do this because it makes them feel more important. If they can make you feel less important, then they feel more important. They can make you feel less worthy, they feel more worthy. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes people make us feel inferior by questioning our convictions or what they consider the lack thereof. In our passage today, opponents had infiltrated infiltrated the church and were making the members feel like failures. They were missing some fundamental responsibilities and not measuring up to God's standard. Paul had let them down as far as they were concerned. He preached only half a message. He didn't give them the complete truth. And they were challenging them. So Paul encourages his readers by focusing on the goodness of God's grace in Christ Jesus. He goes back to what he's been consistent to give them as the message. <clears throat> his point, they don't need to feel inferior And he doesn't mind repeating the truth. That's what he says in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things. I'm not reluctant to tell you what I've told you before. It's the full truth and it 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 will take care of all your needs in your relationship with God. I don't mind repeating that. And my repeating it, he says... It's a safeguard for you. It's for your well-being. So it's good for you to hear it again. Sometimes we think, oh, I got that. I know that. There's got to be something more. That's like I don't, I like to drink water when I'm up here because my throat gets dry. But sometimes at home I'll drink water and I'll always put that water enhancer in it. And I tell my wife, water's boring. I like a little flavor. Sometimes we talk about God's grace and we just assume, hey, it's there. But the power of His grace is working in our lives to cultivate the relationship that changes our behavior. So after confirming his commitment to their well-being, Paul continues in this letter to challenge the hurtful and the destructive claims of his opponents. And he mixes no words here. He calls his opponents in verse 2, dogs. That's not going to rent, that's, that's not following the Carnegie process. But he calls them dogs. Dogs were not typically in that day dressed up in nicely knitted garments. Right? Dogs roamed. There were no leash laws. They roamed around and they scavenged for what they could find to eat. Jesus 
in Matthew fifteen twenty-five through 26, spoke in terms that were culturally used. In that chapter, there's a Gentile woman, a Canaanite, that comes to Jesus and says, ask for his help. Help me. And he writes, or not he writes, he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the what? Dogs. How do you think that made her feel? Often wondered about that. But that's what he said. And she says, and listen to the strength of this Canaanite woman. Jesus says it's not right to take the bread from the, you know, the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she says what? What's your Bible say? In verse, if you look it up, 27. She says, yeah, you're right. Is that what she said? Yeah, you're right, Jesus. It's not right. In verse 27, she says to Jesus, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She said a mouthful. She was a Canaanite. She wasn't an Israelite. Then Jesus said to her, and if you've turned there, what did he say to her? Have great faith. Woman, you have great faith. Now as far as the Jews were concerned at that time, those who were challenging Paul, such a statement would be, are you kidding? Do you know where she's from? Your request is granted, he said. And her daughter was healed at that moment. The point was to identify someone outside of the sphere of being an Israelite who had genuine faith in that narrative. She was a Canaanite woman. So, not only did Paul call his opponents dogs, which was a term, a demeaning term applied to those who weren't Israelites in that culture, Paul turns that and says, and these are people who are committed to the Mosaic Law, to the Jewish heritage, to the Jewish custom, and he says, they're what? Dogs. <laughs> That's, I don't know that I would have done it, but Paul did. I don't know if I had the guts to do that, actually. But he did. But he also said, not only that, but they're evildoers. They're workers of evil. How does that make you feel when you feel like Hey, I am on fire for God. And someone says, 
Is there a time, and this was what I originally was thinking about <laughs> titling the sermon, when seeking God becomes sinful? Can that happen? Yes. It is happening here, isn't it? And even worse, in one word, Paul refers to their practice of circumcision, and you know how central that was, right? And he says, in one word, he says, their practice of circumcision, and it takes four words in English, mutilators of the flesh. Nothing more than abuse. What? Instead, instead, in our passage, Paul says that the Philippians are actually, what's he call them? In verse 3, what does he say? Anybody got it? <laughs> is it up here? <laughs> For it is what? We who are what? The circumcision. These were Gentile believers in this church. Paul was making a radical statement. They were saying to the Philippian members, you haven't done enough. You're not circumcised. You haven't gone far enough. You're not in a relationship with God and says, and Paul says, hogwash. That's way off track. I've given you a message that makes you the circumcision. And it's not going through what they tell you to. What is it that identifies you as a part of God's family? And what we call a quote-unquote good Christian. I never have understood that phrase. Either you're a Christian or you're not. I don't get the good thing. That only begins to put on a checklist. Being Christian... Being a Christ follower, receiving the grace of God in Christ Jesus is enough to cultivate in my life a life that testifies to the love and truth of God. What is it? Paul Paul is warning his readers about religious zealots, not atheistic pagans. In this passage, Paul is cautioning his readers about Jewish adherents and not heretical agnostics. If working like a dog doesn't bring promise and confidence, what will? How do I become a confident Christian? Is it through those works? Is it through me making a synthetic, and synthetic means man-made, synthetic list of requirements, 
so that I now feel confident? Paul would say, no. Then how do we tell? I mean, yeah, aren't we, if, we don't, if we don't tell people they need to do something, aren't they just going to sort of uh, just presume upon God's grace and abuse it? No, you can't. <laughs> because certainly people can get outside of my sphere of influence, but they can never get outside of God's. And God's grace is enough. There's no door that will keep him out. People can say, don't come back here, Duke. But they can never say that to God. They can say it, but they don't have any power to make it happen. And they're saying it to someone who says, I love you. And I'm seeking you. And I'm seeking where you hurt. I'm seeking where you question because I love you. And there's nothing. And he knows them. He knows them better than himself than uh, they know themselves. <clears throat> if we don't feel that we measure up frequently, we're on a downward spiral and we're trying to grab something to say, What <laughs> where am I God? What where are we? I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And people who judge us don't help in the process. Our society wards the successful and those who accomplish great feats and goals. Look at our sports world. <laughs> Don and I have talked about we may not even have a baseball season. What? <laughs> I just don't get it. I, I, I'm naive here, I guess. Guys making millions of dollars and they can't go to work? I don't, I don't get it. But we reward, you know. I mean, there is a small percentage. Not everybody can go out here and hit a big league pitcher. And, nobody, and can't throw like a big league pitcher. Don't, you know, I had somebody tell me one time, they watched a the baseball game and said, I think I could hit a big league pitcher. Are you kidding? There, there, there is a level there of skill that there is a small percentage of people can do. But that doesn't equate into our spiritual journey. It doesn't mean those who can be the next, I'll use Billy Graham, I don't know, are the prime Christians. Now, Paul says in another letter to some Christians, he says, no, it's the unseemly parts. It's those parts that we hide. It's those things that not everybody sees. It's, not, it's those members that don't seem to be always, on the out, you know, always out front, in the arena, on the stage. It's the ones that you don't see that are honorable. But we have a hard time believing that, I think, in our system and where we live. That's why people, long-time Christians in nursing homes, don't feel like they're, they feel less in their Christian walk because they can't do what they used to. That's not God's value system, folks. 
That's not it. He's not saying when you can make the contribution of a Billy Graham, then hey, we're there. You're up there. When we feel we don't measure up, we actually have more to offer God than we think we do. Paul says that he succeeded in every area of his understanding of what it took to please God. He named them off. If anyone had to be confident, he said, I do. (laughs) I've been there. He gave them an example of himself. But those were not the possessions that made Paul appealing to God. God met him on the Damascus Road and asked him a simple question, right? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul, I mean, probably, maybe he thought, but I'm seeking you. And Jesus was saying, but Paul, you're persecuting me. He speaks to his readers about the reward of a good investment. It wasn't his accomplishments that earned God's favor. It was a trade that he made. He he becomes a financial advisor here. We just received a little note from our financial advisor. Said, uh, you know, about market volatility and, you know, stay for the long haul and you know, as you get older, you go, hey, you know, long haul's not as long as it used to be. But uh, she says, you know, I'll be there for you if you have any questions or concerns. Investments are financial matters that we don't want to throw away or we don't want to lose. We don't want to invest something that sometimes, you know, Sometimes in our experience, we said, uh, you know, we don't want to be risky because we might lose it. <clears throat> Paul and his spiritual investment strategy determined that the best option for him was to trash all his attempts. To trash all those things that he said were assets. Things that he said made brownie points with God. and to put his trust in the work of Christ for his forgiveness and relationship with God. Now, he had to do that through the Damascus Road, losing his sight. But he did it. It doesn't matter what you feel you have to go through. The promise is that investment is worth it. You don't lose So Paul wants to review the Philippians' their spiritual investment in light of the challenge that they're experiencing. You haven't done enough. You need to do more. You say you love God. You should be circumcised. You should follow the customs of God-honored customs, they would say.
Are they going to fall short? Are they pursuing a lost cause? Had Paul let them down? No. When he named them off. You know, some businesses do, and some of you know this better than I do. Have you, some of you ever heard of a cost-benefit analysis? What is that? Basically, what is it? Okay. And, and you're looking for what goal? What are you looking for as far as an answer in that analysis? Profit. Is it going to be worth it? Paul offers a real spiritual cost-benefit analysis includes that all those concludes that all those accomplishments, all those things that he did, all the things that he tried to do to earn God's favor are but trash, rubbish, dung. As a matter of fact, he said, what those did for me was blinded me. They became actually disadvantages for me. When he speaks in verse 7 and 8, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That word loss can also mean disadvantage. He says, what is more, I consider everything a disadvantage to the com- compared to the surpassing, surpassing great greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Those things that he was doing to earn God's favor were working against what he was trying to accomplish. The more he worked, the more confidence in the flesh, the farther he got. If we're trying to keep from losing, then we're not going to progress in our relationship with God. Paul said, I count it all loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's in God's grace in the cross and resurrection. We get too tangled up with being defenders in a sense that God, it's almost like we're afraid God can't handle the one who comes to him and is going to uh, receive his grace and then just fire insurance. So we've got to make sure that people understand that when they accept Christ, they can't take advantage of God. Well, listen folks, let me, let me just ease our tension. Ain't nobody going to take advantage of God. You don't have to step in. God can handle it all Himself. And in that grace, there is a tremendous power in the grace of God. And, And we may say, well, what about judgment? Hey, listen. God will be the judge. I don't got to worry about that either. 
and he'll judge correctly. And Jesus said in one place when he was here, he said, not everyone who says to me, what, what? Lord, Lord, shall what? Enter into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, that one shakes me to my toes. How do I measure? How do I have confidence? Because I trust in what Jesus did for me. And in that trust, we become related. And I can learn from him what it means to be his follower. what this book is written for to help us to understand that. In the words of an old converted slave trader, John Newton, one of the verses says this, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis what? Grace hath brought me safe thus far, and works will lead me home. That ain't right, is it, Ben? Grace is enough. And we don't need to constantly go back. I want to share with you that I don't know how many times I got saved in my life. And what I mean by that is there were so many times, especially after high school and into college, I thought, I'm, not, I'm lost. How could I do that and be a Christian? I must not have been a Christian. So I prayed to prayer again, and then, and then I did something else, and then I prayed to prayer again, and then I went to a Billy Graham con- uh, crusade, and you know I did it again. We need to start with the grace of God and allow God's grace to have its work fully and not constantly go back to like that wasn't enough. We need to pick up where we are. Confession is a great thing. God wipes the slate clean and picks us up and moves us on. And we continue because in the words of that old slave trader, former slave trader, his grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. So, chuck the checklist. Continue to walk in the understanding of God's grace. Continue to understand what He's saying. And sometimes it's a little tricky. It can be a little tricky. You haven't done enough. You need to be circumcised. Paul says you are the circumcision. Let's move forward. Grace is enough. If you haven't started there, if you're still trying to earn that acceptance, God says, (laughs) I've taken care of it. I've taken care of it. I've fulfilled the requirement. If you trust in Christ, his death and resurrection, 
We'll put all that behind us. And we'll move forward. So that others that you love and that you know and that you meet might have the opportunity to experience that grace as they see it at work in your life. 